0: Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. So my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, excited to continue on in our, our study in Luke today. And as we delve into this uh, this particular passage, I wanted to Uh, talk a little bit about um, maybe a setting here of sorts that you think about. You have the title, you have the text there with us as we think about a particular location in the world. If you've ever uh, thought about or or maybe some of you have been to the spot uh, where some of this biblical story takes place, to the place of the Mount of Olives, and that's particularly in Jerusalem. Now, our story doesn't take place there exactly today. But I had the chance to go and visit that area, and as you kind of go out of the old city of Jerusalem on the, the eastern side, and there's all uh, the great historical center that's there, and you make your way up to the Mount of Olives, you start hiking your way up there, and if you're on a normal track, you usually can see things like a Garden of Gethsemane and a possible tomb where Jesus is, and then you kind of keep working your way up there. It's, it's pretty hot in Israel, so today's you know, kind of that kind of feeling here, that, that really hot uh, dry and, and yet sweaty uh, experience the sun on you beating down and you work your way up to the Mount of Olives and as I did that I got towards the top and I don't know if you're like me but uh, you, you make your accomplishment I'm ready for my snack, my reward after I've made my accomplishment so I get to kind of the plateau level here of the Mount of Olives and I start looking around and I see over to the, the side on the right there's uh, the Ascension Coffee Shop and cafe. So that's a bit of a tourist trap um, as it's right there and, you know, drawing, drawing folks in who are on, on their pilgrimage. And I thought, I'm a savvy traveler. I'm not eating there, not at all. I look over to the other way and I see a bit of a sun bleached sign that says Mount of Olives, cafe, and rooftop. And I thought, okay, that looks a little bit more authentic. I can try a little bit better. So made my way over to that uh, particular restaurant. And uh, long story short, I can't really recommend it You will pay exorbitant prices beyond what you should for shawarma and falafels, but you can't beat the view. The view is a rooftop view. So even though the the, the owner feigns to misunderstand pricing and numbers in both English and in Hebrew, he will charge you whatever he wants in the moment as he gets through it. But you get this great view. You look back and you can see on the horizon, enfolding out in front of you, the old city of Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock, uh, mosque that's there gleaming in the sunlight and you can look down at what you just walked up in the Mount of Olives and as you look out there there's one clear sign so you're sipping your ice-cold coke on a hot day you're eating some overpriced falafels and shawarma and you look out and you're stunned by just the slew of graves there are tons of graves on that side of the city all throughout the Mount of Olives. We think about Gethsemane, and we think about Jesus's potential burial there in the garden, and we think about these other things. But there's just so many graves on this side of the city. And as I'm sitting there and I'm looking out, there's a particular site that you can see looking down from the Mount of Olives that's particular for our text, or specific for our text today. It's a monument called the Tomb of the Prophets. The Tomb of the Prophets is a place that's been enshrined. It's got you know, a long history to it. Whether or not it really dates to the the period of the actual times of the prophets, always debatable. Those things are challenging. But the point is, is that early in Israel's history, there was a recognition that they needed to put a tomb in place to remind them of the prophets that God sent to them, and remind them of how prophets have been treated in that place. Particularly in this shrine that's there, there's the last three prophets of Israel that are there, uh, in enshrined in. in in what they understand from tradition. So there's Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And it's a really poignant moment. So as you're sitting there, hopefully feeling the heat, drinking some ice-cold Coke, checking out that, that scene, you see the graves, and you're reminded of this one essential grave of the tomb of the prophets. And you can be thinking a lot about just what is intended from that. What should you be learning from the idea that there is this tomb to remind you of prophets? What bearing does that have on us? And when you start to think about what these folks did, right, those last three prophets that I mentioned, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they're kind of in the very end of your Old Testament. They may not be the books you're the most familiar with in reading, to be honest. But as you think about them, they had these really important messages at the kind of the end of the history of Israel that mostly went unheeded. They weren't listened to by the people. And as God was trying to convey, turn back, come back to, follow the covenant, Understand God's love toward you and do that. The nation as a whole basically rejected those messages. There was hope that was there. But then what happened is God more or less stopped his voice from coming to his people. For about 400 years, we have what we call kind of the silent years, that the voice of God stops to be heard. Now, there's many things happening, okay? It's not the dark ages at all during those silent years. There's politics, there's battles, there's wonderful religious writings that are happening during that period of time. But God's voice is no longer speaking to his people to warn them and draw them back. In effect, the prophets were silenced. They were no longer allowed to have their voice heard and received by the people. It was silenced. Now maybe some of us have forgotten what the sound of silence is like in our homes, right? It's this distant memory you remember a long time ago, silence. That was I was really great. But the reality is that silence oftentimes can be a point of danger, right? When you're supposed to hear something and you're no longer hearing it, there's opportunities for danger, for peril, for death. Think about just the tragedy that happens when someone is annoyed by a smoke detector and removes the batteries and then the smoke detector doesn't alert you when there's a real emergency. The annoyance Caused us to take away that sound and put real danger in folks' lives. It can mean peril, a serious or immediate danger, when we silence the warnings that we're supposed to be hearing. So as we look into our passage today, Jesus takes us back into an understanding of the prophets to understand what their meaning is in their lives. And as we look at this passage, we're going to get one big idea that we're looking at from this text today, and that's it. Don't silence the word of God in our lives. Don't silence the word of God in your life. If we silence God's word to us, it's at our own peril. We face significant danger and distress if we don't heed and listen to God's word. So don't do it. Pretty straightforward point. We're going to try to drill that down We're going to look at three parties and their reaction in this text. The first one is about the prophet. We'll talk about the prophet and his peril and the function that's presented with the prophet in the first couple verses. And then we'll go on to our human tendency to silence the word of God. And then finally, we'll talk a little bit about the disposition of God that we see from this passage together. So let's begin by this first one, talking about the peril and the function of the prophet in verses 31 and 32. So I've just read this text, but I'll uh, point it out to you again if you have it on your phone or uh, in a text near you. We'll also have it on the screen at points. But in verse 31, as we think about what happens here, right? we have an interesting scene. At this moment, the Pharisees are coming up to Jesus and they're warning Jesus to get away from Herod because he wants to kill them. Now, if you've been following along at any point in the Gospels, pretty much anywhere you flip open the Bible, the Pharisees are not like the good guys. They're usually fighting with Jesus, but here they're giving a warning to Jesus. Hey, get away. Herod's trying to kill you. Now, we're not sure exactly of what's going on here, if there's some kind of ulterior motive like, hey, yeah, get out of town. That'd be great for us if that's part of what's in play here. Either way, they're being warned that uh, Jesus is being warned that Herod is after him. Now, as you read that, we see who Herod is. Uh, You might be reminded that Herod shows up quite a bit in your Bible. We think about the Herod who tried to kill Jesus as an infant. Um, That's actually the father of this guy. He was Herod the Great, or not so great, uh, who was in charge of that time in Israel. This is his son, Herod Antipas, that we know from history. And he was the leader in the time of Galilee. And this guy had a bad streak to him. This is the guy that killed John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. So he had him beheaded. So this guy's already been successful once in silencing a prophet who brought significant charges to him. And now this guy is after Jesus. So this warning is legitimate. This is a guy who has street cred, right? You, you believe this warning, he's got a hit out on Jesus. Let's start thinking about how to handle this. So the Pharisees are like, get out of town. This isn't worth it. So he's probably in Galilee. That's part of the region of where uh, he is at this point. Um, in his ministry in the text, and that's where Herod Antipas was uh, in charge of the area. So that's likely where he is. And as he he presents this this message, there's real fear, peril, urgent danger. Jesus, get out of town. Herod is going to kill you. Jesus' response in verse 32, as only a prophet could give this response, says, Go and tell that fox, Okay, that's a great opening line, right? Doesn't quite carry maybe the full meaning of that, but he's a crafty guy, he's sly, he's up to no good. I don't know if you've had a fox in the hen house or a fox chasing something in your lawn ever. I saw a friend of mine had a picture of a fox in his backyard, and I was like, I don't want any of that, that looks scary. So foxes aren't good things, even if it doesn't quite convey culturally for us. That's what he's saying, it's not a good name. He's calling him a fox. And then his response is, is, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures. So he summarizes his ministry in these two elements. We've talked about that before. There's much more to what Jesus did, but that's kind of a a bookend segment of what Jesus is doing. He's casting out demons. He's curing people. Obviously, he's doing a lot more than that, but that's a good summary of what he's doing in his work. And then he says the duration of that, how he's going at that. He says, I'm doing that today, and I'm going to be doing that tomorrow, and I'm going to be doing that the third day, and I finish my course. So Jesus doesn't seem to be especially panicked in this situation. He says, I'm going about my ministry today, and I'll be doing the same thing tomorrow. And guess what? That third day, which incidentally is a really cool name for a band if no one's thought about that before, but third day is pretty cool. Third day, and I'll finish my course. So he throws that out there to say, I'm not freaked out here. I'm not running away from this scenario. I'm staying to do my ministry as a true prophet would So he puts himself in this situation, and the concern of Jesus really shifts, right? The Pharisees are worried for Jesus. Jesus takes this opportunity to go, don't be worried about me, I'm a prophet. Let me tell you what you should be worried about. So he turns that that peril, that danger, back on his hearers, so they understand what situation they're actually in here. But before we dig into that a little bit further, let's talk a little bit about a prophet. We don't have any of those really walking around today, folks that we can interact with, so let's talk a little bit about the function of the prophet. Prophets functioned as speakers or God's voice to individuals, to Israel, and even to other nations of the world, right? So think about it. There's a limited amount of written correspondence, written text or Torah scrolls available. And so oftentimes, the way that God's word word was known was when it was heralded, when it was shared, when it was told. And prophets were the primary mouthpieces of how God delivered his messages, Prophets usually provided two types of messages, and they're, they're a very common way to remember those. One of those is called foretelling, like looking ahead to what's going to come before, like telling about the future. And the other side is what we usually call forthtelling, telling, because it's really easy to remember it that way. Forthtelling telling is telling God's truth again, heralding it out, saying it out loud so people can hear it. The majority of the prophets' messages in our Bible is really that second one, forthtelling, telling, telling us what God wants us to do. They didn't have new innovations, new things that they were sharing the majority of the time. They actually were pointing back to old teachings from Moses' law. They were pointing to things that God had said and the people had failed to follow. That's what prophets were doing. In many ways, they were bringing application of God's truth into people's lives and into the nation as a whole, saying, you can't do this, you broke God's law, It's wrong to treat your widows, your orphans this way. It's wrong to intermarry with people who don't believe God. It's wrong to charge people interest and make a bunch of money on the backs of them. And tons of other social messages throughout his time to tell them how they failed to both love God and love their neighbors. But as we see in this passage, Jesus here identifies himself in the community of the prophets. You can see uh, in, in this verse and in the one following, Jesus puts himself forward as a, as a prophet. Now, Jesus as the Messiah of Israel actually fulfills three offices of uh, the Old Testament uh, prototypes. He's a king. We think of Jesus as king, right? He's in the, in the family line of David. He follows after that. So we see Jesus as a future king for us, and he fulfills that in setting up his kingdom, a key message throughout Luke. We also know that Jesus is a priest that he intercedes for us, he represents and mediates us before God in a way like the Old Testament priests used to. And here in this passage, we see that Jesus is also a prophet. So Jesus functions as prophet, priest, and king in fulfilling his his work as our Messiah. And as a prophet, he stands in and does a messaging work of God, both bringing in information about the future, kind of that that foretelling part, but also calling people to repentance and to turn back to God's commands as uh, forth-telling is presented. So when we think about this, part of him as being a prophet is understanding how prophets were received in the Older Covenant. Prophets often faced rejection and adversity because of their message and mission. This is why Jesus as a prophet isn't surprised that he's facing danger from Herod Antipas here. In fact, he's ready for it. The prophet's job was acknowledged to be a hard one. Hear these words spoken by the Lord to the prophet Ezekiel in his book in the second chapter. So this is to the prophet Ezekiel. This is what God says. The Lord said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to, uh, to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impotent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. What a job description, right? Go to these terrible people, give them my message, they probably aren't going to listen to you anyways. Sounds like a great job, right? That's the prophet. That's what he was asked to do. He is taking God's message to his people regardless of their response. The prophet's hard job of being sent and telling people to repent and believe is a difficult one. And the reason why it's difficult is because of humans. People are the reason this is a hard job to be a prophet. It's difficult to tell people that they're wrong and have people respond well to that and turn because of being told that they're wrong. Now this continues on and this isn't just a situation for Israel or the Jewish people or the city of Jerusalem alone. This is a human problem. So, our second point we want to look at is our human tendency to silence the Word of God. This is true across humanity. It's true of each of us that we have a tendency to try to silence the Word of God. Jesus says in verse 33 that he has to continue on his course for, or because it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So we see in the order of the prophets throughout the older covenant that there is a tendency for prophets to face adversity and often die. In the biblical book of Jeremiah and in some of the non-biblical historical writings of like Josephus, there's references to prophets being killed. Josephus comments during Uh, evil king Manasseh's reign, that he barbarously slew all the righteous men that were among the Hebrews, and he would not spare the prophets. For every day he slew some of them till Jerusalem was overflowing with blood. That's a record that's recorded then of just how pervasive the prophets' execution were in Jerusalem. So we see this is is happening in Jerusalem. Jesus makes clear, we heard last week from Pastor Justin, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. Here's my announcement. That's where I'm headed. So as Jesus says that, and he knows he's a prophet, there's a little bit of foreshadowing here. A prophet in Jerusalem doesn't last very long. A prophet who tells people that they're wrong, to turn from their sin, people don't like that. They turn from it. They fight against it. Jerusalem is signified here in verse uh, 34, in the, the first part of that verse, it calls that and the a city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus here is using Jerusalem as probably more than the city proper and likely signifying throughout Israel's history this tendency. First Kings tells us about evil queen Jezebel and her husband Ahab, and they killed several prophets. Second Chronicles and other historical points to probably the prophet Zechariah being killed at some point in his ministry. We hear of attempts and threats to kill Jeremiah. And there's extra biblical writings that talk about the possible murder of even the prophet Isaiah. Later in history, okay, you're following along, even the apostle Paul references this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says about the Jewish people that they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. So you know you're starting to get a, get a pile up of, of examples. It starts to not be an isolated incident, incident, right? It starts to be a reputation. When you keep doing it over and over and over again, it starts to be true and known that this is a problem, that Israel turned against its prophets. So you see those examples presented. They wanted to silence the word of God so that they didn't have to hear what God was calling them to. Why is that true for humanity? Why is that true of us as well? Well, I want to think a little bit about the ways that we silence God's prophetic voice in our lives as well. So I don't mean necessarily the future telling, but I mean that forth telling, okay? We're talking about ways that we don't want to hear what God's word has to say to us. This human tendency looks at, not typically through murder, but does do many things to silence God's word from reaching us. We do this because we know if we hear and receive God's word, we know that this will call us to repentance. We'll be called to give up what we've taken as a substitute for God and instead be told we must relinquish this to have what God promises. So I wanted to come up with a few ways that we may do this in our lives. And hopefully this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but some ways in which we try to silence God's voice in our lives. Number one, we sometimes avoid hearing, or reading God's word, right? That's the most obvious way. If you don't show up on Sunday, you can't hear that, that preacher preaching at you to say, change your life. Works pretty effectively. If you don't open your Bible, God's never convicting you of things you should be doing differently. Avoidance, avoidance. Number two, sometimes we skim the head knowledge, but we neglect the hard application, right? So you think about a nice cold brew or a beer, right? And that foam that's right on top, you skim that off the top, Some good stuff underneath, but if you just take that top part, you don't really get the full intention of whatever beverage you're consuming. As you think about that skimming off process, that's sometimes what we do with head knowledge. Whether it's academic, like we enjoy it, you could spend decades studying God's word and tickle your mind and have interesting things to look into. But if it never changes our hearts or affects how we read the Bible, then we're missing the intent of what God is saying to us. Or it could be legalism. We have a check the box. Look, it said don't do this. I didn't do this. Great. I can check my box. Skimming the top. That's sometimes how we read God's word and how we receive the preached word as well. Number three, sometimes we miss out and kind of silence God's prophetic voice when we're so focused on others in our mind, right? Sometimes we focus on serving in good ways others like oh i really want this person to hear this message oh i really want them to receive the gospel so i'm so focused on this other person that i don't personally hear this message for me i don't see what god is trying to teach me when i read his word or it may even be at times where we're comparing ourselves like yeah that guy over there has been doing a bad thing so i hope that verse really hits him that'd be important without realizing that we too need that message in our lives number four We dilute God's Word, dilute God's Word. Sometimes by taking in other sources of information. We can do that because we take in these other sources at higher quantities or sometimes at higher value, right? If we spend our whole week imbibing social media and and mainstream media and our friends and our family and their views and their ways that truth is found and what is right and what is wrong, it's no wonder that God's Word has such little hold and effectiveness in our lives. If we don't see in some significant quantity God's word, if you just show up here and you get about 20 to 40 minutes of someone speaking here at the front and that's your, your time of taking in God's word, that's pales in comparison with all the other sources that are trying to tell you what to believe and what to do in your weekly basis. But beyond just uh, diluting it by quantity, also think about valuing. If you think of God's word as just this archaic thing that has nothing to do with your everyday life, then you kind of set it aside, even if it's like a nice little thing to read from time to time when you can't fall asleep, it's not making an impact in your life. You're not holding it at the value that you should to have God's word speaking to you. And finally, another way that we silence God's voice from impacting us is we believe lies. We enjoy what we're doing, the pleasures of sin or substituting something else for God's rightful place, believing it is better for us. If that's what we're doing, we're believing those lies, then we're not turning to God to let it have its full weight and effectiveness in our lives. We're not seeing, hey, I'm doing the wrong thing here. I need to change that. We're not believing God's promises to the full effect to change what we do because we believe something else to be important instead. So these human tendencies are all played out in the pages of the Bible, and Israel does their killing of prophets and their ignoring of God's word for these reasons in various passages. And we often find ourselves trying to do the very same things. But God's word is only silenced, as we said at the beginning, to our peril. Because God is seeking to communicate. He gives us a, a, a next, uh, next point here that we'll dig into in a second. As he tries to communicate with us, we get to see a little bit about God's disposition or character. We see in the final verses of our section, from the words of Jesus, The reason that we need to listen to God's word is because of who God is. This is the disposition of God in the last verses of chapter 13. We see in verses 34 and 35, I'll just read uh, the second half of verse 34. After talking about Jerusalem and their tendencies to kill the prophets, he says, "'How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken.'" and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what do we see about the disposition of God? What do we see about his character from this passage? Well, first off, we see he's empathetic in care. He's empathetic in care. Jesus' words in, in the second half there are verse 34. He talks about gathering the children together, and he gives a simile. He talks about that comparison. As a hen gathers her brood, under her wings, and you were not willing. There's probably no more of an intimate simile that he could give for comparison to get the concept of how God thinks about his care of his people. He compares himself using a feminine metaphor to convey the love of a mother. Yes, he's using it in animals, but to see that as a soft means of showing the love that God has for his people. One commentator writes, in this image, Jesus reveals God's heart. God's constant desire is to intimately care, care for, nurture, and protect his people. So that's how he comes towards us. That's his posture. That's his disposition for you. And yet in this passage, we see that that love for Jerusalem, that love for his people, is met with unwillingness. Now, this unwillingness doesn't neglect or doesn't negate, excuse me, doesn't negate the caring of another, but it may prevent the receiving of it, right? If you're not willing to be loved, if you're not willing to receive that in any way, there's a sense in which you putting your guard up stops that from happening. It in no way invalidates the person who's attempting to love and care for you, but you're not going to receive it. That's what is being talked about in this passage in that the nation of Israel didn't receive God's love toward them. So maybe you've tried this approach. You've silenced the voice of God from coming into your life. You can do that as you try to minimize your sermon intake or you've neglected to read God's word. And yet perhaps you know full well this disposition of God. Maybe you know his graciousness, his mercy, that he has been reaching out to you in multiple times. Maybe you're here and you're a testimony of someone's personal love to you to show that God loves you. And as God has reached out to you and made that present to you, this passage would be calling you to say, why aren't you receiving that? Why aren't you seeing that God has been tender and calling you and trying to gather you to himself? That should cause you to recognize his love and respond in faith and say, yes, I've seen God not give up on me. I've seen God continue to put people and circumstances in my life so that I might believe. And so if you're not a follower of Christ today, this is a call to say, if you're here, if you've heard the call and the love of God in your life, this is a chance to respond and receive that as true. Won't you do that? Won't you see what God has loved towards you, has been calling you to do? But maybe you are already a follower of Jesus, but you haven't seen God pointing out your sin to you or steadying you with his promises. Maybe it's been a minute since God's really met you through his word. Maybe you've grown a bit cold or calloused in receiving the words of God as they're truly meant to be received and as needed. The opportunity is now. You can reverse course, turn back to God and embrace his word. The greatest way to warm our hearts again toward God and be tenderness is to seek God earnestly, to turn to his word and expectantly asking God to show himself to us, to show us our sin, to show us his love for us. We have this opportunity as we meet on Sunday to show up and not worry too much about who the person is who's sharing God's word, but a chance to hear what is God saying in this passage today that I can receive and know that God is speaking to me from his word. There's an opportunity for you to discipline and open up God's word and say God is meeting me through this so that I can know what, what God wants me to change and receive in my life. So we have multiple opportunities to do that. But this is the, the chance that we could see God's empathetic care for us and respond to that. Lastly, we also see in this passage in verse 35 that God is just in his judgment. So his love is present, right? We see his empathetic care, but it's also his holiness is on display as he's just in his judgment. The offer is real from God, but the judgment for not receiving that offer is equally real. The coming rejection that Jesus would receive in Jerusalem and his mission is happening So Jesus pronounces a rejection of Israel and the true danger or peril that they're facing. He talks about an empty house in this passage and whether that refers to or a forsaken house, an empty house. As, as you look at that, that phrasing, it either could point to the temple itself as the temple would be removed from Israel or it could just speak of the shell of the nation without God being present with them and what would be left. And he says the the time period here is that they'll lose the presence of God. Jesus won't be with them, as he says. They won't see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the scary thing is they were almost on the cusp of that at, at Palm Sunday that we'll read later in Luke, right? The people come out in the streets. They sing Hosanna. They call out to God, recognizing blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the moment. And 24 hours later, they turn and they reject him again. And it's the same thing for us. We look at the nation of Israel and we think, how crazy that they would turn again. They had Jesus right there. How would they not turn in faith to him? And yet we have God's word before us. We have the opportunity for the preached word. And how often do we do the same thing? We muffle it out. We dampen God's word from having its effect in our lives. I don't know how many of you have been sucked into Formula One this year or the last couple of years through that awesome on-ramp Netflix called uh, Drive to Survive. I don't know if you've had that effect on you. I'm a, I'm a poser who now follows Formula One. Uh, maybe some of you were following it before. But one of the cool things as you see Formula One and this racing around the track is it's loud, it's noisy, it's not exactly NASCAR, but you know it's, it's still pretty fast and they're doing their cool stuff. It's not quite as noisy, but it's there. And they pan the crowd, and you'll see people wearing headphones, earplugs all around. And you think, that's so strange, right? You spent all this money, you went to a racetrack, you wanted to see a race car go around, and you want to miss the whole experience? You want to dampen the noise? I'm not a doctor. I'm not making any uh, prescriptions of what people should or shouldn't do to their their auditory um, situation. But as you think about it, I'm like, the realness, you're there. You want to hear that passing car go around at incredible speeds near 200 miles an hour, and you want to hear it. But what do people do? They dampen it. So they're there, but they're not really getting the full experience. That's kind of what we do with God's Word. We might go through the motions. It might show up. But if we're not actually coming to God's Word to feel the experience, to see in full-orbed, Dolby sound, God speaking to us through his Word, We're missing the experience. We're missing what God has for us. So that's our opportunity to turn from today, and he says that danger is real. So by way of application, just a couple of quick points. Number one, pretty straightforward. Don't silence God's prophetic voice in your life. Hopefully you got that through and through. Are you avoiding, are you skimming, are you focusing on others, diluting or believing lies that keep you from hearing God's voice in God's word. Dive back in this summer if that's you. You have the opportunity. Pray for ears to hear and look for what God has for you. You can dive right in to grabbing God's word and looking expectantly, asking God to speak and show himself to you through his word. And then number two, consider the disposition of God when thinking about your sin. When we're in sin, we're believing lies. We feel the weight that's happening there. It's like sandbags on your shoulders and blackout curtains over the windows so you can't see the light coming in. God's sin, or our sin is heavy on us and yet God is moving toward us. Hear these words from James 4.8. James writes, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's a great promise there to us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That means you're actually as near to God as you want to be. As you move closer to God, God doesn't like take another step back and keep his distance. God moves toward us. As we move near God, he moves toward us. As we move near God, he moves towards us. So we have the opportunity to delve in deeper in our intimacy and love of God and hearing his word and God will respond Calling us to repentance, yes. Calling us to deeper and harder beliefs, yes. But we can be nearer to God. Then hear these words from the older covenant, especially if anyone who is not believing yet Jesus today, and you hear these words and you think, is now the time? Is this a time when God might be asking me to turn toward him? Hear these words from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts that often get in the way. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is God's heart. God loves us. God knows our sin. And he invites us to move towards him. And he meets us. So if you say, I can see God has been kind. God has allowed me the circumstances to be nearer to him to hear his word and see his love. Won't you respond knowing that opportunity is today?